Our Father, we're thankful that you have created us the way you have created us, that the universe is in your hands, that you work all things after the counsel of your will. There is not an atom tonight or a molecule or any other force in the universe that is not under your total, complete control. And this comforts us when we see from the human point of view so often puzzling things in our lives and we see chaos here and problems there. It's so comforting to realize and fall back upon the fact that every aspect of our life is in your hands and that back of all you exist and you are the Lord. We thank you for the salvation that you have given to us in grace. And as this year we study more about your Son and particularly his work on the cross on our behalf, we ask that you would open our hearts that we may appreciate in a mature way what it took to bring us into a state of salvation and also to look forward to what next. We thank you for these things now in Christ's name. Amen. This series, uh, I don't think I have to remind anybody who's been coming, but there are some new people. Um, this series is kind of a, a combination of three things. And uh, um, if you've been here a couple of years, it's good to recall what we're doing. This is not a replacement for verse-by-verse -verse exegesis of Scripture. And there's a place for that in the pulpit, outside of the pulpit, and it should be the nourishment and lifeblood of the church, which is exegesis of Scripture. And this course really is not concentrating on exegesis of Scripture. It uses it, but it's not to replace that. Uh, another thing, this course, while it um, touches on almost every subject, uh, is not to replace specialized academic studies either. Um, they have their place. And there are godly Christians in many of the fields who do a lot of sacrificial work to conquer these fields and bring them under the dominion of the Word of God. But what we're trying to do is provide a framework. And what we've done is we've gone through the Scriptures so far in the last, I guess, four years we've met. We've gone from Genesis up to the New Testament Gospels. We have gone through, and I'll, I'll review those in a few minutes. But the idea here, with this framework, is to be able to think through in a systematic way our Christian faith. Um, one of the weaknesses that plagues the church in our time is that we have been infected from outside the church. We've been infected with a sort of existentialist, mystical approach to life. And one of the features in every continent and every land where this, this idea has come forward, people tend to be fragmented in their thinking. And when you're fragmented in your thinking, the dangerous thing is you can entertain conflicting views and never be conscious they're conflicting. This is why, for example, um, to cite a, a sad chapter from our American history, this is how uh, the Southern White Church uh, during the 17th and 18th centuries in this country uh, became totally submerged in the economics of cotton growing to the point where they used slavery. 
and, and at the same time, they were preaching the gospel. And there wasn't some sort of a, a thing here, but, you know, after all, slavery is a capital offense, by the way, in the book of Numbers, um, to, to, to take a person to slavery. So, uh, it's called man-stealing. And uh, there was no consciousness. This was fragmentation. And so, whenever we have fragmentation, we can be very godly uh, and orthodox in certain areas, and then totally out of it in other areas. So a framework helps to control that. Um, we've, we've also said that there, there are two basic objectives of the framework. It's to help us worship God. Um, if we worship Him, we have to worship Him as God overall. In Scripture, there's not a difference between the sacred and the secular. That's some man-made distinction. And what that leads to is um, we, we can come on Sundays to church and hear nice things, but then, even if we want to, often have difficulty in trying to see how those things apply to our life during the week. And that is a failure to, to worship God as the, as the Lord and Creator of all things, not just the things we think about on Sunday morning. Uh, and then probably uh, another thing that we want to think about is how do we obey Him in a day when the globe is being united very much through the internet, through, through uh, communications like we've never seen. It's unprecedented the kind of communication that the world is creating in front of our face. Um, 70 million people, uh, or I don't know how many, I saw statistics, millions and millions of people are on the internet. And this is going to become a highway and a conduit of ideas for good or for evil. It's like all technology. It's not bad in itself. It can be used for evil purposes, but it can also be used for godly purposes. It's like the telegraph. It's like the train. It's like all the technologies. It's tools. Noah created our civilization, and what did he do? He got drunk. He had an orchard, and he, he failed to control it very well. And he wound up drunk, and all kinds of things happened in the, in the origins of the different cultures as a result of that act. So we have those kind of things, and they are coming to a head in our time, that our, our, our world is becoming a very globally unified world. And what that means is, is when there's falsehoods that are propagated through the system, they propagate very rapidly. Years ago, the church could sit back and defend itself. It could had time to respond to bad ideas and heresies. Today, the heresies come in in a matter of hours, all across the world, in a matter of hours, a matter of weeks. And there's not a time to pray about it. There's very little time to think about it. These ideas just all of a sudden, everybody's thinking the same way. And it's difficult to formulate, well, how do we respond to all this? So. That demands that we have some sort of systematic way in which we articulate our faith, in which we think about God, and the scriptures have given it to us. So what we'd like to do tonight is um, I'd like to go to a passage in the New Testament, and we're going to look a little bit at Paul's development of the two mentalities of thinking scripturally and not thinking scripturally and how much he emphasized these ways. And then I'm going to review a little bit 
about how this plays out in the battle for our minds. Um, 95% of the Christian life, the defeats and the victories occur right here. It doesn't occur out in society. It occurs in our responses and how we respond to the things around us. So the Bible emphasizes thinking and thinking carefully. Not that that's all to life, but that's where the battleground is. So let's turn in the first in the New Testament, and as I say, tonight we're going to review the last four or five years of the series, and we're going to go on, and then next week we'll ease into what we're going to do this fall. Um, if you'll turn in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This is one of those passages, it's a nice rich metaphor the Apostle used. Uh, as he looked out upon the economics and the uh, political structure of his time, using those as metaphors for the spiritual life, he says in verse 5, and commentators have, have uh, speculated that there's imagery behind this particular passage. The imagery is that uh, there were... Uh, along the Roman lines of communication throughout the Roman Empire, uh, the bad guys would often have these fortresses. And uh, pirates would stay there uh, near the coast. And uh, in other areas, there would be bands of marauding troops, plunderers. And they would have these protected enclaves. And they would try to pick off people along the lines of communication, the major highways of their time. And it was up to the Roman armies who policed the Roman Empire because the Roman army acted as internal police as well as defense against foreign powers to patrol these areas. And when they hit one of these strongholds, they pull it down. And they used grappling hooks and everything else. And that when the Roman army got through, there wasn't any more enclave. Now, that would solve that problem for a while. And then you move on and do something else. Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul picks up that imagery. But he applies it to our hearts as believers. He says, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. And he goes on to describe the situation in the Corinthian church. But a point we're making tonight, just quickly from verse 5, is that he recognized there's a, there's a battle going on, and it keeps going on, and it's a battle of good and evil, and it starts in our hearts. It doesn't start out in society in some external place. It's internal to us, and it's the internal battle that we face as Christians. So now I want to move to his classic exposition of the heart of man. And so let's move to Romans chapter 1. This passage is absolutely critical to thinking through where we stand in an unbelieving society as Christians. The temptation is to think of our environment as sort of in darkness, we use that, that uh, terminology, in darkness, the person who has not trusted in Christ, 
looked upon as a person who sort of is like someone walking around the dark, um, a person who just is a spiritual, spiritually ignorant, does not aware of things. Paul, however, challenges that view. And I want to go through this first chapter of Romans just in, in certain sections of it tonight to sort of set up for the structure of the framework. If you notice how he starts in Romans chapter 1, he says, I'm a bondservant of Christ Jesus. I'm called an apostle. I've set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, right off the bat, the authority is what? The authority is the Scripture. Not because it's some ancient book by itself, but because it is the Word of God. That God has spoken into the creation and He has inscripturated it in human language, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. And this Holy Scripture, he said, was beforehand. He's talking here about the Old Testament. And this is why it's taken us three or four years and Thursday nights to move our way through the great sections of the Old Testament. Because today, if you go into the average church service and you do a statistical survey over, say, a year, and ask yourself how many times do you hear a sermon on the New Testament and how many times do you hear a sermon on the Old Testament? And I think you'll know it's about nine to one. Now, the interesting thing is, when you pick up your Bible, how much of it is new and how much of it's old? It's about two-thirds Old Testament. Well, why is it then that we're getting 90% of our teaching out of the 10% of it or 25% of it? Is there something wrong with the rest of it? Or is this better somehow in the end? Well, not really. The New Testament presupposes the Old Testament. And Paul is presupposing the Old Testament. In fact, verses 2, 3, 4, and 5 here, look what he does. He's going back to those old scriptures. And he says, because he doesn't have the New Testament here, he says, this gospel that I'm preaching to you is a contentful message which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. Now he makes a statement in verses 3 and 4 concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll notice he develops it completely out of the Old Testament. What does he say? He says, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of Holiness. We could get into that and go on word for word and spend hours and hours in it, but I just want to point to the fact that there's a parallelism there. If you look at the text where it says, he was uh, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, or out of a descendant of David. Now let's look at the verbs. Born. Made. Came to be. There's a parallelism that he is going to use here in this structure. The verb, he is born, and in the Greek preposition ek, it's out of a descendant of David. And of course, this gets into the theology of the Old Testament. Why David? Why not Moses? 
Why not Abraham? Why not Jeremiah? Why not Isaiah? Why David? There's a reason for that. But right now, let's keep looking at the structure. He was born, or he came to be, or he was made out of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Now, this particular preposition, according to, means like uh, with reference to. So, with reference to the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ came out of David. This takes us back into the Old Testament. We reviewed this in previous sessions, but David was the first fully authorized king of Israel. Saul was called, but his line failed. And David, then the Davidic line, assumed the throne of Israel. This is about 1,000 B.C., so 10 centuries before the Lord Jesus Christ, there was this man David. A lot of scripture in the Old Testament centers on the life of this monarch. He's a critical figure in the history of Israel. But David was a fallen being. And David, therefore, did not fulfill the full desire of a monarch on earth that would be godlike. And so David's line came to be prophesied. The Holy Spirit worked through that line and prophesied to a greater David who would come centuries later. And David then becomes a type. But this future descendant has to come from the genes of David. And this is why in the New Testament, when you open the text, you come to these passages, both in Luke and Matthew, big genealogy. What is all this in the New Testament? It's to prove a point. That David's son is connected genetically, genealogically, with him. Why is that important? Because the Scripture, the whole basic underlying thing of Scripture, and this is why there's so much history tied into the New Testament and Old Testament. The Scripture is basically an argument that God makes a promise and He keeps His word. This explains those texts that frustrate you when you first start reading the Bible and you get into these details. So-and-so begat, so-and-so, and so-and-so did this, and then they conquered this land, and then they did this, and then you... What is all this history going on in here? The history is a proof that God kept His Word. What do we call the two parts of the Bible? Let's think about that one for a minute. The New Testament and the Old Testament. What is a testament? A testament is a legal document. What is a legal document? A contract. It's a contract. Why do we make contracts when you buy a house or buy a car? We have a mortgage contract or we have a lien, or we have some sort of legal controlling document. What would happen if we didn't have those? Well, chaos. Documents are there in order to measure the behavior of the people who sign on the bottom line. So in the, in the fascinating thing about the God of history is he's condescended to lock himself into contracts with a human race. He's locked in to doing certain things. And this becomes the real reason for history. Now, let me make a digress here, make a point, because this gets back to the framework. Remember we said we want to learn as Christians to think systematically. Here's the problem we face in a secularized education that we have today. 
I mean, just this week I heard about here Columbine High School, where we had the shooting. Great Christian testimony going on there. I mean, if you notice, the last few disasters in this country, Christians have been right in the center of it. More media attention of the Christians have been caught in these cauldrons of, of chaos. So they were going to have a, a memorial for the students that were killed in Columbine High School, and they invited the parents of the ki- who had lost sons and daughters in that disaster to come and paint on tiles a memory in the hall. So the Christian parents came in and they maybe put a verse or two and so on. So the end of the story is that the school authorities walked through and pulled all the tiles off where the Christians had put any verses on. But if you didn't have anything religious, then the tiles stayed on the hall. So here we have all these people, great Christian testimony. A girl gets shot because she claims to be a Christian. This guy blows her away. And then the testimony goes in the hall and the school officials take the tiles off. So this is just one in a thousand things that go on in this country and this silly idea that you can secularize education. You can't do it. Now here's why. Let's get back to David. If God structures history according to the contracts that he makes with particular parties down through history, how can you study history without studying the contracts that drive the history? The Davidic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant. Do, who were the first writers of history? Let's think about that. When I study history in, in a secular school as a non-Christian, uh, one of the things I remember, I don't know, I must have had a great uh, history teacher because he must have drilled one thing into me, and that was, who were the first historians? How do you remember that in an exam? Herodotus. I always remember that because H.H., Herodotus and history. Well, these were the Greek guys. Now, excuse me. When were the Greeks, when are these guys writing, quote, these first historians? Four or five hundred B.C.? After that time. When was the book of Joshua written? When was the book of Judges written? A thousand B.C. Five centuries before the Greeks even put clothes on. These guys were writing history books. Why were they writing history books? Let's think now. Here's a secular historian. He has these magnificent ideas of why we have history. Oh, it's because of the dates. It's because of this. It's because of that. Why did these guys write history? The first men wrote history because they were recording what? In, those, in their selections. I mean, you could write a thousand different topics historically. Every historian has to abbreviate. He takes this, 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 and this, and leaves out that, and leaves out that, and leaves out that. Selection. Why did these guys select the material they selected? Because it proved the plan of God for history. You see what drove originally the first historians? It was a desire to track the footprints of God through time. What a tremendous motive for history. I wish somebody had taught me that when I went through secular school. All I remember was that I had to remember a lot of dates and burp it back up on the test so I could forget that and move on to the next test. And there was no pattern there. There was no structure there. And this is why after you study and study and study and study, and you get all the dates and all the rest of it, you finally think, well, what's this going? What does this do for me? And people saying, well, Jesus, students aren't motivated. Well, of course they're not motivated because the method of approach is totally wrong. You're telling everyone, 
from the get-go that there's no pattern here. Don't look for one. Just memorize. Or just discuss your ignorant opinion with Mary's ignorant opinion and John's ignorant opinion. And then we'll all pool our opinions. Because nobody has the truth, of course. It's just opinions that we pass around. And then wonder why we get frustrated. And what this does, it's not just academic, people. This, this rubs off into how we think of our life. This happens to us. This happens to us. This happens to our husband. This happens to our wife. This happens to our kids. This happens to our school. This happens to our community. This happens to our nation. This happens to my parents. It's all meaningless. Just chaos of happenings. No. If God has a pattern for history, then everything that happens has a meaning, a cause, and a motive. Something is going on. A story is being written, and we are the characters in the story. There's a great author writing something here. We have to back off and start asking ourselves, what's the plot? Where is this thing going? Well, that never happens because we never get back to this point that Paul's making, that Jesus Christ came out of David according to a plan of God, according to his flesh. Then he says in the next verse... What does he say? He says, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead according to the Spirit of holiness. That sentence is parallel. And I want you to notice the verb difference. Declared versus born. Out of the resurrection according to the Spirit of holiness. Now, that's his description of the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's think about that for a minute. In verse 3, he has talked about the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses a verb, means come into being, was born. It's translated in this particular translation I'm using. It's translated as was born. But the Greek word means comes into existence. He was made. Well, deity isn't made, is it? Deity is eternal. So, whatever is described by the verb in verse 3, it has to be his humanity. That's the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that, he's related to us through David, down through, up all the way back to Adam. But then, when he discusses he was declared to be the Son of God out of resurrection according to the Spirit of holiness, now see the contrast in the sentence. Look at the verb contrast here. One is, has a start in time. Boom. Now it starts. Declared means it's just revealed. He always was that. But it's revealed. There's no origin point to his deity because deity always existed. So Jesus Christ was declared out of the resurrection. Just as this was out of David's genes, the declaration or the revelation of who Jesus really was came out of this mysterious thing called the resurrection, which we will study this, in this uh, fall and in, in, in spring in the deity of Christ in our section, because that's the section we're on. The birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. And last year we did the birth of Christ and the life of Christ. Now we're going to deal with death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And this resurrection is a mighty, powerful thing. It's a total refutation of every human philosophy that man has ever created. In an instant of time, the Lord Jesus Christ did not become a spirit. He became a body. He walked around. He ate food. He walked through walls. He disappeared. He uh, reappeared. He took up space. 
he was able to have something that touched. People could touch it. But the flesh was a flesh without blood. It was a flesh of flesh and bones. But it was a flesh that was designed for eternity. Never again to fail. Never again subject to illness. It was a flesh that was designed for the eternal state. So that's how, that, as Jesus Christ was resurrected, that was a revelation of who he really was all along. The Lord Jesus Christ being God. Well, Paul discusses this. He gets involved in these depths. And then in verse 5, he says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith among all the nations. Now, when you look at verse 5, do you notice in that verse any talk about Christianity being one of many religions? And that probably should be confined to Europeans. What does it say? It says, to the obedience of faith among all nations. This is a claim to absolute truth. Now, as I said, and I've tried to, to warn you as we've gone through this series, is from time to time, we really get into it here in, in a sense of offending worldviews. Now, here's one that's very unpopular today. There's not a modern person existing in our culture who thinks like a modern person who can, who can believe verse 5. Verse 5 is insisting that the truth is truth regardless of the culture. Truth is truth regardless of the continent. Truth is truth regardless of the century. doesn't matter whether it's before 2000 or after 2000. doesn't matter whether it's black skin, white skin, red skin, or yellow skin. It's the command to all nations. It's an absolute truth claim. And the fallacy of our time is that we, the, in the academic world, in the world of education, and in the, the talking heads on TV, everything is relative. Everybody has their opinion. It's relative. Relative to this, relative to that. And that's your opinion. That's my opinion. But as we've said again and again, there's an internal fallacy in that kind of a statement. The hidden fallacy is that I believe the truth that I believe the absolute truth that everything is opinion. It's never stated. But the idea that all things are relative itself is an absolute. Self-contradictory. How can all things be relative? So, unbelief has built within it some very severe problems. And what I want to do now is I want to move down to verse 16 and review a little bit about the fragility of unbelief and the silliness of it so that we will not be intimidated as Christians. You know, grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. And we walk around like we're to be uh, ashamed or we have to apologize for the gospel. When you go through the Apostle Paul, it's the unbeliever who should be apologizing. Notice, for example, in verse 16. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And he, he, he's going to argue that the other side is the problem. The unbelief is the silliness. He says, it is the word of God that is powerful, is able to bring everyone to salvation, because in it is the righteousness of God. Notice right off the bat, why is it that the gospel is something that is reliable? It is because in the gospel and in the gospel alone is declared the righteousness of God. 
And this gets us back to something we've learned in the past, and we'll go just review it again. Those of you who've been here have seen this a dozen and a half times, but everyone needs review, including me. So let's um, get this in focus. And this gets back to our evil diagram of the nature of evil. And we want to remember that God, from the standpoint of the Word of God, there are two, two ways of looking at evil. Let's go from truth to falsehood. In the Scriptures, in the Scriptures, there is the only solution for evil. Now, very often it's totally reversed because usually it's the non-Christian who comes to you and says, you Christians have really got a problem. You people really have a problem because if your God was good and he's sovereign and he's omnipotent and he allows this and he allows that and he allows something else and they usually pick some heart-rending thing. If your God is sovereign, omnipotent and loving, then why is he doing that? Why did he let that happen? You've heard the argument, I'm sure. The insinuation is that somehow the gospel has a hidden internal self-contradiction. Well, we're going to turn that right around. And I want, to, want you to follow this diagram. Because this is why Paul says in verse 17, it's the righteousness of God that is the power. Power to do what? To save. Well, all that's just gobbledygook language if we don't see this point. In the scriptures, when God created the universe... Did it have evil in it? When God created Satan, was Satan evil? No. What does the scripture say? God's comment, just like a craftsman. Craftsman sits there and he cuts his wood, wooden duck and he looks at that and he says, that's good. When God worked through the creation and he set up the thing, what does it say that he said to himself as he finished? This is pretty good stuff. Very good. It's his own self-evaluation of his handiwork. First picture you got in God of God in the Bible is a, is a blue-collar craftsman. Just think of that for a minute. How honoring to labor that is. Labor didn't come in because of the fall. Well, sometimes I think some of my sons thought that, that after the fall you had to work. God worked before the fall. Labor isn't a result of sin. Labor was a high calling. Sin complicates labor and makes it grievous. But if we think labor is, is of the fall, we've got a problem because in eternity future, in the kingdom of God, we're going to be laboring. Uh-oh. Thought I was going to cruise. No. We're going to be called to do work. So God's labor, labor in and of itself, is good. Well, then we came the fall. So in an interim period of time, was the universe good or was the universe bad? The universe was good. Also, since God is immutable, he changes not. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. From eternity to eternity, God never changes. He's good. Well, now, how does the Bible explain the origin of death, natural evil and human evil, suffering, sorrow, storms, earthquakes, Interesting, the last three earthquakes, they're all in the same latitude. Plot them on a map. Mexico, Taiwan, Turkey. Looks like the center part of the earth has a problem right now. Earthquakes. 
all this chaos, hurricanes, where did it come from? The scriptures claim, and you can disbelieve it, you know, react to it and try to allegorize it, but the scriptures claim that all evil originated because of creature rebellion toward the Creator. That it was not there from the very beginning, that it was brought into the system by an act of sin. And the Bible is equally adamant that it will be dealt with finally and permanently in judgment. We often don't like to, to, to mention the heaven-hell issue. But folks, if we don't, we don't have a problem and we don't have a, we don't have a solution to the problem of evil. Heaven and hell is the biblical answer to the evil problem. That God will one day totally, completely, and permanently separate the good from the evil. That's his plan. And that's his answer to the issue of evil. It will be separated, and it will be a very painful thing. This is why when we become Christians, the, the act of struggling with sin in our lives, it's hard, it's painful. You know, it's, it's, it hurts. It hurts because it's a tearing, a tearing away between the good and the evil. But in between the fall and the judgment is a period when good and evil are mixed together, and that's what we live in now. But if you look at this chart carefully, what does the chart do for you to one who is trapped in this interim time period between creation and the, uh, between the fall and the judgment? We, want, we go through this period of good and evil, but we have hope, don't we? We have a hope that one day it will be dealt with. That's where the resurrection comes in. That's where the prophecies of Scripture come in. That's where the work of Christ on the cross comes in. That's where the great promises of God come in. There is hope in the face of real evil. The Bible, see, is not a magic formula that says, oh, it's just on your mind. The Bible fully recognizes that evil is so seriously present that God's Son has to come down to planet Earth as incarnate man and himself die a horrible death in order to cope with the results. The Bible is very, very realistic about the existence of evil. It's not, it's not a dream. The Bible never says evil is a dream. Evil is, is some sort of imaginative thing. It's not that. The Bible says evil is very, very real. All right, that's the Christian position. Now let's turn the tables on Mr. Non-Christian. Let's look at this. Here's our unbelieving friend. We call him Mr. Pagan. And I deliberately use that term. I know it offends people sometimes. But I believe that in our country and in our culture and our time, we're paganizing out that we're going to see a polarity in our society. It's becoming more and more evident each, each year that the Christian position is over against the pagan position. And so paganism doesn't mean a person's always corrupt in the, in the social sense. I mean, there were great pagans down through history. Great pagan moralists, by the way. A pagan is defined as one who does not believe in the God of the Scriptures. That's all. It's not a nasty word, although people take it that way. It's not originally a nasty word. It just means someone doesn't believe the God of the Bible. Well, the pagan is left with this mess. Because from eternity to eternity, he's got a mixture of good and evil. He never can point to a time in the past when there wasn't evil. 
look at the picture you get of evolution, survival of the fittest. You always have this chaos this between good and evil. The oriental pagan thinkers have thought this through very, very carefully. That's why if you look in the bottom of that chart, you'll see that it's actually, you can see it in the flag of Korea, but that's the yin-yang symbol. And that symbol is a symbol, traditionally, of dualism between good and evil. The dark side of that yin-yang is the bad. The light side of the yin-yang is the good. And you'll often see that in jewelry. You'll see it in art and so on. It's the, it's the ancient formulation of the, good, the darkness and the light conflict forever. So we have this good and evil situation. Good and evil is forever normal. Well, Paul says that... If you start with a pagan position, you wind up making good and evil normal. If you come to the Christian position, then you say that what we're living in is an interim period in which good and evil is abnormal. Now, you can't agree between those two positions. You've got to take one or the other. Is life today in this universe, in this world, normal? Or is it abnormal? You can say, oh, that's just an academic art. Oh, really? Let's think about a sociological study. You, you hear them all the time. A poll. A poll. We're going to take a poll, a statistical poll, and we're going to sample opinions about X, Y, and Z. So who do we sample? All fallen beings. And what does our statistical data come up with after we formulate our normal curve? It's the average sinful person. But somehow, because in the pagan way of thinking, we've got to find some sort of normative, so we plot a normal distribution and call it normal. And then we have the weirdos on the extreme of the bell-shaped curves. But this is the normal. Well, there's only one person in history that you can go to to find what a normal person thinks. Who is it? The Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only sinless person. So you're going to have a poll you better go to the Gospels and find out how a normal person thinks and then set that over against all the rest of your database. That's the way to biblically look at a thing. But that's never done because everybody's saying, oh, I like the normal distribution. Well, sure you do. But normal distributions aren't going to solve this theological problem and the deductions from a normal distribution of social, sociological statistics doesn't tell you because the average sinner behaves this way that I should behave this way. So that's just another application of this point. And Paul insists then, at the heart of the gospel, the righteousness of God is the key. Because God is right and he is going to deal with this problem of evil. Now Paul goes on to say certain other things about the unbelieving mind. He says in verse 18, the gospels points to... I better put this back up. The gospel points to salvation because the righteousness of God is there and this is the only solution because the wrath of God is also revealed. Now think about in our own evangelical circles. When you hear the gospel preached, how often do you hear the topic of the wrath of God discussed? There might be some polite words about uh, God punished Jesus for our sins, but you can trust in Christ and so on. And then uh, that's true. That's true. You can trust in Christ. 
But the problem is, if we trivialize the work of the cross, we trivialize automatically the wrath of God. Paul, in verse 18, says, the wrath of God is revealed against heaven. Why, why do we have to bring up the wrath of God? Because if we don't, we don't solve the problem. The Bible is realistic. God is angry God. It's revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God gets mad. And that's a message of Scripture. And it's not a politically correct view of God. But folks, we've got we to gotta deal with this. Because hidden in the heart of all of us is our own guilt situation. We don't feel we're accepted with God. And where does that come from? Because we have this residual awareness. We can deny it all we want to. Go through all kinds of psychological gimmickry. But deep down under, we, we become aware that God is, can get angry. And God is angry at sin. And we can try to suppress it, say it doesn't exist. Paul says, better not do that. The wrath of God is revealed. The question now is, let's get it all out on the table. God is angry. Well, now after we get that out on the table, what do we do with the anger? Why is he angry? Well, he says, because, in verse 19, and this is the conviction of sin for every man and woman and child in existence in all of history, whether they have heard the gospel of Christ or not, whether they have a Bible or not. This is a conviction of sin. And here's the basis for the conviction of sin of every person in the human race. Because that which is known about God is clear within them. God made it evident to them. Well, how can you say that, Paul? I mean, people honestly tell me that they don't believe in God and they don't see any evidence of Him. The Bible insists that evidence is in us, behind us, around us, and through us. Because, he says in verse 20, since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen. Now, Paul is making a point here. Paul usually is a, uses words pretty economically. But I want you to notice something about this sentence structure. Let's look at it for a moment. He says, it's a, it's a non-theist, anti-theist. And he says, the A, or Raul, or the unseen things. That's just the not visible, it's equal semantically to that in the English language, the invisible. This is just those things which cannot be seen. So that's the subject of the sentence. Now let's come to the verb. What's the verb of the sentence? Are clearly seen. Now just to show you what he has done here, let's diagram the force of this verb. He says it is clearly seen. In the Greek language, he has put a, put a prefix on the verb, K-A-T-A, kata. And he adds that to the stem. The stem of the verb is to see. He enforces the verb with a prefix. It is clearly seen. Then if that doesn't get it across, he uses the present tense. It is constantly clearly being seen. That's his answer to the fact that some people come, well, I don't see anything. Well, it's like a blind man who doesn't see you when you turn the light on. It's not a comment on the bulb. It's a comment on the eyeballs. So what he says is that all men 
constantly see these things. And then he goes on to describe two things. He says, the eternal power and divine nature. And if you want an exposition of that, which we won't have time tonight to do, eternal power, if you want to see how Paul uses that, look at Acts uh, 14, uh, verse 17. That's when he's preaching to Gentiles. He'll, He'll give the illustration of weather and rain and so on. And if you want to see how he uses divine nature... That's uh, exposited when he went to the hill, Mars Hill uh, sermon to the Greek philosophers. And that is in Acts 17, verse 24 through 29. And you'll see how he uses Greek poetry to show the divine nature there. So it's clear from usage what he's talking about. You just have to look at how the apostle preaches. So he says, look, he says, Since the creation of the world, the things which are invisible are clearly seen. Now, how can you see the invisible? So now at the end of the sentence, he's going to give a participle, a participle clause that explains the dichotomy between this, between the subject and the verb. He set up an antithesis, and it's got to be resolved somewhere in the sentence. So now at the end of that sentence, he's going to put in a participle clause. Now let's watch this. He says, being understood through what has been made, so his argument is that, and it's the word for mind, noose, in here. Our minds, we come equipped, our children come equipped, we come equipped. Our mind is taking in all this information. It's clearly seeing it, but we don't directly see God. Paul recognizes we're not seeing God. But we understand from what we see that God is there. He says it's understood by the things that are made. And then he's so sure of it, he says, that in the last part of verse 20, there's a purpose clause that closes out the sentence. What's the purpose clause? Or result clause? So that no man will ever be able to come before the throne of God in eternity and say... I didn't have enough information. Excuse me. No one will ever be able to say that. All of a sudden, the penetrating holiness of God will project itself on every human heart. And people are going to let down the guard and say, yeah, I knew. I just fooled myself. And I may have fooled a lot of people around me. And the final tragic, the tragedy of this is that men and women will go into eternity without God because they have self-deceived themselves. That's how insidious sin is. Sin affects how we think. If we think that we can't see the evidence of God, that itself is damage that's already been done in our minds. There's a pathology here that Scripture is arguing about that affects our minds, our way of thinking. That's why sin is so serious. Sin is so serious that it keeps us from seeing what we should see. It's a disease. It's damage. It's a cancer to the brain. It's computer code that doesn't compute. It's all screwed up. So, saying that... Paul then goes on in verse 21, and here's his analysis of what results in the energy of the flesh in our minds. So even though they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God. Now, here's the essence of sin here, notice. No, it's not, there's not a sin of morality here. There's not some sin of theft. There's not some flagrant social thing. It's far more deep and profound than that. It says, because they knew God, they simply didn't thank Him. That doesn't sound very dangerous. doesn't sound very rebellious. But you see, when we fail to give thanks to Him, we've already transgressed because we've already reanalyzed our experience in such a way that we've absorbed the false idea of good and evil. We haven't recognized that He is working all things out for good. We have bought into the pagan worldview. We have borrowed this idea of good and evil. We don't give Him thanks because we don't really think He's sovereign. Or if we do think He's sovereign, we think He's bad. And that's where it all starts. Simple lack of thanksgiving. That's where it shows up inside the soul. So he says, he says, let me trace it out for you in all of its grotesque results. He says, they knew God, they didn't honor Him, God, as give thanks. They became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Now, the word speculation is a Greek word which means dialogue. It means the inner reasonings of people. And he is saying, and this is an attack upon all unbelief. He is doing something here that is, again, very politically incorrect and not, not for polite company. But he is arguing that unbelief, and he uses a word that you'll see in Scripture, vanity. We won't have time to develop that word tonight, but let me guide you to its meaning. Vanity is exposited in gruesome detail in one book of the Scriptures. Anybody know what it is? It's the book that begins, Vanity of Vanity, All is Vanity. Who wrote the book? King Solomon. It's in the Old Testament. You go through that book and you'll see what this technical word, this is a technical term. It's a descriptive term for something about human thinking. It means that unbelief, the picture is, of vapor. It's not that it doesn't show up. It's just that it's really irrelevant and transient. It's going to blow away. There's nothing enduring about it. It's not truth. Falsehood doesn't endure. It endures for a moment just like vapor on a cold morning, but finally it dissolves. And woe to those who trusted in it. They also dissolve. So, what he's saying is that there's a dangerous fallout of sin and it affects the mentality and the way we think. Which leads me now to the final thing I want to get at tonight. I want to show some slides that try to depict what this does to our thinking and try to show it in contrast to um, how the Scripture wants us to think. In the Scriptures... Here's the way thought, um, let me get a pointer here. Here's the way thought comes in Scripture. Here's the way God pictures how we think. First of all, there's a saying that the Christian thinks God's thoughts after him. Thinks, let's, let's think about that. Thinks God's thoughts after him. What's, the, what's this after business? Who thought it first? 
You, you, found, you do an equation and think, ooh, I got a multi-term polynomial equation. This is so slick. Who thought of it first? Who thought of the rules of flight? Who designed the bird? Airplanes don't use any different aerodynamics than God used in designing birds and butterflies. He had it first. We come along after him, and we think some of his thoughts after him. That's what that means. By saying that I think God's thoughts after him takes me into a subordinate position. Now I'm discovering truth that was there before I walked around. And, and it's a humbling status that I acknowledge that I am discovering truth that pre-existed me. So I have nothing to do with the truth, I just discover it. The Creator has pre-existing thought, language, and meaning. He has an eternal plan for creation and salvation. We'll get into the one and the many thing later when the Trinity, which we covered a little bit last year. The creature has derivative thought, language, and meaning, and we experience providential history. The result is, bottom line, in the mentality of Scripture is, we faith rest in the Word of God. That is our authority in every area. Because it is the Word of God alone that gives meaning alone. Apart from the Word of God, the creature has no source of meaning. Well, what does this do for me in experience? I want to show this slide, and then we'll uh, come back to this in a, in a moment. We're going to overshoot the class. I'd like to get everybody out of here at 30 minutes after, but we're going to get a little bit late tonight, a few minutes. What I've tried to do here is diagram the poles. We'll get into the different extremes here later on. But in our lives, we tend to oscillate between two poles. What we call over here, this is the legalist pole. This is when we're optimistic, think we got everything under control. This is the other pole and everything goes to pieces. Depression. And in any given day, you find yourself moving between these poles. Everybody does, because we encounter different things. Well, how do we control this oscillation in our souls, scripturally? I want to give you two promises, many, many promises in Scripture. But let's turn to James 4. Here's one of two promises I want to conclude the class with that show, or something to remember about this optimism when we get the, the fat head and think we're in control. James chapter 4, verse 13. Let's look at this. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Business plan. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Please notice the end of verse 15. He's not saying don't have business plans. Notice that? He's saying, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. means, go ahead, make your business plan. It's just that somebody upstairs has a veto. And he can say thumbs down on that. That's what James 4 is saying. So the spiritual control against arrogance and pride is to remember that the plans have to be submitted to the Lord. 
and he has the right to veto your plan and my plan. And it may look great to us and me wait and say, oh, well, I was led to the Lord to do this. Well, maybe not. Better check. And he can hold out his hand and say, no. And all the scripture is saying is he can take you tonight. He's saying, you live in a fallen world. I control life and death. I can call you home tonight. Now what happens to all your plans? Up in smoke. So that's one pole. And it's not that we go be morbid, get morbid about this. Absent from the body, face to face of the Lord. Better off. But it's rather that instead of getting fat-headed about how great we are and how in control we are and how great and wonderful our plans are and what a wonderful person I am because I do this and this and that and everything else. Ignore the things that I don't want to ignore. That's one control. Now, the other control is the depression. And so what happens often in our lives is that we go for this period and then we encounter a defeat or we encounter an adversity or some problem comes into our lives and because we've handled it the wrong way to start with, we didn't okay, we didn't see our lives as under the hand of God, we just saw this, we're going to do it our way and it doesn't work out our way and then we go into depression and go to the other extreme. Nothing makes sense, I give up, heck with it. And the pieces fall apart. We've all been through this thing. So let's go back to the old famous promise of Romans 8.28, to which we'll conclude tonight's class. This promise is built on the opposite. So we have two promises at both ends of the oscillation to protect us from going off into the Thules somewhere. Romans 8.28. This says, be careful what it doesn't say, by the way. This says, when we're depressed and things fall apart, and because they don't go my way, they don't have any way to them, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those that are called according to His purpose. He does not say in verse 28 that we know what the good is that it's working toward, does He? And that's why in this diagram, we've chosen to complete the jigsaw puzzle above the dotted line. What's that dotted line walking across that chart? That's the distinction between the creator creature. The jigsaw puzzle is solved in his mind. We may never, ever, even in eternity, find out all the pieces. But in his mind, the pieces all fit together in a very meaningful way. And that's, you get back to that old song, I don't know what the future holds, but I know the one who holds the future. It's a very simple thing, but it's a very profound thing. Because on the non-Christian basis, I can't do this. You see, I can't do this. On the non-Christian basis, I'm locked out of that dotted line. If I don't have the dotted line, now what do I do? I have to, I'm doomed like a, a ball that bounces between two walls all the time. Either I'm in control, I'm in control, I'm in control, or I'm out of control, and I'm over here. And this is just a frantic oscillation. It goes back and forth, back and forth. One time I'm a, I'm a legalist, and I'm in control, I'm going to do it this way, and I can show God all the great things I do, and this way I give up the heck with it, and you go into the licentious pole, the depression pole, the drugs pole, or all the rest of the poles. This comes about because of what's going on up here. And one of the things we want to accomplish in our framework is to think through the scriptures. 
Because, folks, when we die, we're going to appear before God as an individual. Your wife isn't going to be there to hold your hand. Your husband isn't going to be there to put his arm around you. You're going to face him as an individual, just like you came into the world by yourself, alone. You have to stand before him. I have to stand before him, every one of us. It's ultimately him with whom we have to do. And we have to orient our lives to this. And we can't, all of us, we can't memorize the whole Bible. I mean, some people have, by the way. But most people, normal, in an abnormal world, don't, don't, uh, don't, don't memorize the whole Bible. So what can you do? You just have a, a framework of enough so that when the, the mud hits the fan, you at least have some inkling, where do I go for an answer? That's what we're trying to do. Can't give all the answers in Scripture. Don't know all the answers in Scripture. But we can give an outline, a framework, a sort of a how-to procedures so that we know and have the confidence. I mean, it doesn't it help to know that there are answers? Even if you don't know what that particular answer is, there's one to whom we can go for the answers. And a lot of them, he's already told us about in Scripture. And he's given us assurance in a generation when it seems like everyone's attacking the Christian faith. It seems like we have no assurance of the truthfulness of our own position. We're going to erase all that stuff. When you go through the framework, you will have confidence that this is truth. And that the rest of the people that are attacking Scripture are full of hot air and baloney. It doesn't last. They haven't got an argument that can stand up to the Scriptures. Don't care what area of science you want to talk about. Science itself is built on Scripture. Father, we thank you for the truthfulness of your word. We're thankful that you did not leave us outside of Eden without calling to us, without chasing us down, without providing a Savior for our sin. And Father, we're thankful that tonight you've allowed us in this room, in this country of ours, the peace of assembly, the freedom to assemble. And we know even tonight there are Christians that have to hide, that have to um, carry on subterfuge, even just to talk to each other about scriptural things or anything. And Father, may we thank you for the blessings that we have and not turn aside and treat what you have given to us in such a careless and sloppy way that we go on totally oblivious to your blessings. Open our eyes that we may see and behold wondrous things out of your law. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If some of you have questions that might have arisen from the class, we always have a time afterwards, after everybody clears out of here, four or five people uh, usually talk about, I usually stay around 15, 20 minutes. So everybody's dismissed. And if you want to have some Q&A, we'll have some later. No. Yes. Okay. Oh, okay. Uh, there's been a call for a, re a review of the coming attractions. Um, what I want to do is uh, next week I'm going to uh, review what we did last year in particular on uh, the, the person of Christ and his nature and the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, as he was born, he was born 
as undiminished deity and true humanity, and we went through, remember, the doctrine of the hypostatic union. It's very important that we recall that because when we get into the death of Christ on the cross, um, this can be very misconstrued if we don't have our feet on the ground solidly about who the person of Christ is. See, the problem is that people often turn the death of Jesus into the, it's like a human martyr. And uh, that, gee, this guy gave up his life and, uh, you know, isn't that inspiration? Liberal theology has done that, by the way. In the 20th century, the liberal modernist theologians have contaminated the pulpit and contaminated a lot of seminaries with the idea that Jesus' work on the cross is inspirational, not salvific. And by that they mean is the image of a martyr dying for his cause uplifts me and gives me motive. But see what a trivial concept of the death of Christ. I mean, Buddha could have done the same thing. So, I mean, what does that do for me? I mean, we had Vietnam protesters that doused themselves in gasoline and burned themselves. Um, so, and what else is new in history? So, before we get to the death of Christ, we want to review the person of Christ. And then we remember that in the Garden of Gethsemane, prior to his death, he had that, that agonizing prayer that he had to make. And that decision, you know, Father, if it be possible that this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, thy will be done. And that's when we want to review the doctrine of kenosis because it's very important we understand the impeccability and the kenosis of Christ. Otherwise, we don't, we don't really have the tools to appreciate what was going on there in Gethsemane. Then when we got through that, which hopefully next, next week we'll finish that, we'll move in to, the, to discuss the death of Christ. And this is going to take some time to do. And the reason it's going to take some time to do isn't because the work of Christ on the cross is necessarily, from what it's been revealed in Scripture, is necessarily um, uh, incomprehensible. I mean, everything ultimately is incomprehensible to God. But the Scriptures give an awful lot of revelation about the cross of Christ and the, and the atonement. The difficulty is that because of the systems of reformed theology that have come in uh, since the time of Calvin and Luther, we have segments of the Christian church that are arguing that the cross of Jesus Christ applies only to the elect and has no connection with anyone else. Uh, not quite as crudely put as that. But this is a problem. It's called the so-called limited atonement. In fact, if you know Calvinism, traditional Calvinism, this tulip, total depravity, un unconditional election, limited L, limited atonement. And so we have to discuss this issue of limited atonement, and then to discuss that forces us to get into this issue of, of reformed theology and what it's all about. So it's, um, it's not going to be quick when we get to the death of Christ. Um, I'm sure, however, when we get through it, uh, we should appreciate all that he did. And, of course, we are going to say that the, the Reformed thinking is valid in an area. The, the Reformed theology is not wrong. Uh, I see the problem is it never went far enough. It never completely reformed. So, in any case, uh, we'll deal with the, the atonement of Christ. And then we're going to move from there to the resurrection of Christ. 
and deal with that issue. And uh, that's one that usually, for some reason, um, I don't understand it, but in our evangelical churches, we don't deal much with the resurrection either. Uh, we tell Jesus stories. Um, but we don't really come to grips, I think, with the resurrection of Christ. And then that would end that fifth block of material. I tried to do one block a year. And last year we didn't make it, so we keep spilling over. So that fills that block. Then we're going to start the final block, which will deal with the church age, which begins with the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ into heaven. And that's yet another aspect of his work. And if, if the resurrection isn't, isn't taught well in our evangelical circles, surely the ascension of Christ isn't. What did Jesus do? What was different when he ascended the throne in heaven? Something changed. And how history moves is controlled by what Jesus is doing in his ascension. And in his ascension, he's assuming a crown right. And then there's a discussion about what is the crown right? Is the ascent of Christ to the throne, is that equal to fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and the end of Old Testament history? Or is it a preliminary to, an, to another fulfillment of Old Testament history? In other words, um, think, for example, of the life of David. Do you remember David was uh, uh, ordained? Uh, let's think of a parallel. David was anointed by whom? What was every king anointed? He had to be anointed by a prophet. Why is that? That's, you know, you hear it politically, we talk about the kingmakers. Well, it's not so facetious. In the Old Testament, there were kingmakers. Kings were not democratically elected. Didn't have to go out and raise funds for their political campaign. The kings of the Old Testament were anointed, often as children, often as children, as, as David was, teenager, uh, anointed by a prophet, and did not ascend the throne for years after his anointing. And David's life, if you think about it, who was his great opponent? From the time that David was anointed, and as a young, uh, well, as an older teenager, in whose camp did he fall? He came into the, into the, the monarchy of his time, and who was the reigning monarch in David's time, but Saul. And David, at first, had a cozy relationship with a reigning family, royal family. And then what happened? He had a falling out because of jealousy and because Saul, deep down in his heart, knew very well that his, he was going to lose. His dynasty, he would not be able to create a dynasty, a Saulite dynasty over the nation Israel. And so, when Saul realized that, and he looked at his son, Jonathan, and he realized that there was no future for the house of Saul, he became very angry, profoundly angry at God for not electing him as the dynastic ruler of Israel. And so he decided he'd take things into his own hands, and seven times he tried to kill David. There were seven assassination attempts in David's life in the scriptures. And all through that, you have this marvelous interplay that no dramatist has ever done well. Um, that I know of, it would be an excellent, excellent uh, movie of the relationship between David on the one hand and this son of Saul called Jonathan on the other. Here's the Saul, here's the son of Saul who would have been the crown prince of the nation, who would have inherited all the reigning rights, and who does Saul help but the man who is going to replace him? 
that's the irony of this. It's a high drama of those, those books of Scripture. So my point in applying this as an analogy to Jesus is this. Though David was anointed by Samuel early in life, he had to fight, he had to endure, until when? Until he finally ascended the throne. There's a long interval there. And I think there's a parallel in that the Lord Jesus, though he has ascended the Father's throne, he has not yet ascended David's throne. And he's going through a long night. In fact, there are passages in the New Testament that says Jesus Christ is waiting, waiting at the Father's right hand for the hour. Well, what's he waiting to happen? And that opens up the whole question of what is the church age doing? What is the church doing? Something the church is doing is absolutely necessary to get finished before the next era of history begins, which will be the Millennial Kingdom. Well, we have to say, then what function does the church have? So that's part of the thing. And it's related to the ascension of Christ, what he is doing now at his Father's right hand. So those are some of the topics coming up. But all of them, and I warn you about this, all of them draw heavily upon our understanding of the Old Testament. That's why I didn't start out with this. You, you want to remember, you want to know your Old Testament well enough to appreciate the covenants that go into this. Uh, when Jesus stands up in the communion service, we, we celebrate, in all the Christian churches, we celebrate this, and we, we go, you know, go through it once a month or something. Uh, and we, you know, the pastor points out, he usually quotes the scripture, this is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for thee, in remembrance of, do this in remembrance of me. Well, do we really know what the new covenant was all about and why that was such a dramatic announcement the day before he died? So, those are all the things, the richness of truth that comes up out of, erupts out of the pages of Scripture. That God is a God of order. He's a God of planning. He's a God of perfect execution. And I think that's one of the reasons why I always like to approach the Scriptures historically. Um, there are many ways to approach Scripture. I'm not saying this is for everyone, but I know many of you have come Thursday nights like it because you, you express the fact that when you view God's program historically, it gives you confidence in that, you know, here we are in our lives, and we're just part of a bigger picture, a more grand scheme. And it's, it's just spiritually strengthening and encouraging to look at Scripture historically, that nothing stops God. Men fling their fist in his face, but he always has the last word. It's a master chess game. Go ahead, move your pawns, watch him die. God has in perfect control of the chessboard, and that's what we want, we, we want to know. When, when our lives are in a mess, or when we're coming to grips with a problem, I want to know that the big picture is sound. Even though the little Charles Clough picture may be rolling all over the place, at least the big picture is sound. And we need that. All of us need that to get through life. And that's what the scriptures give us. Are there any particular questions that you might want discussed as we go on that uh, you might be thinking about so that I can try to weave that in as we, as we go on through the, through the series? Yes. I'd like to um, tie in the Old Testament sacrificial system and how if 
you know, that relates to Christ's death. Uh, maybe a little more specifically, I know generally, but... Okay. Um, Wade had asked if we could tie in the Old Testament sacrificial system uh, in some detail. That after all, for centuries... I mean, think about this. For, you know, we, this is an element not totally missing in our, our religion. But uh, if you've been reading the papers in the last three or four years about Israel, um, very interestingly, are breeding red heifers. Uh, the red heifer was a was a non it was an extinct um, cattle subgenre, and uh, the the Israelis. Uh, Paul, you were there. Did you discuss that at all when you were there? Okay. Paul just has been to Israel recently. Okay. Well, see, there's certain animals under the sacrificial system that had to be sacrificed. And we don't have probably a clue. I, I once did some calculations based on Solomon's sacrifices. And I tell you, it's a bloody mess. When you think of this sheep and cattle that were slaughtered at the temple, um, I try to picture myself um, in the middle of having to see, carry this lamb and see its throat slit and the poor animals bleeding to death, and, and then you burn it, uh, and you think, gosh, you know, what kind of shock does this do for your system when you see this happen? Um, the tender heart who had been circumcised by the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament had to have gone through um, some, some cycle of, uh, of repentance when they saw that this is what my sin led to do. I have to do this. I have to, have to see this bloody mess of these animals because of my sin. I mean, the poor animal didn't do anything. I'm the one that did it. But look what I caused here in front of my face. Blood all over the place. And it's just a shock for us to see blood. I mean, it's, it's messy stuff. And think of that going on century after century after century. And then for Jesus Christ to get up and say, I am the Lamb of God. Now, we think it's cozy because of our art forms in church. You know, he holds the Lamb. That wasn't what he was talking about when he said, I'm the Lamb of God. When Jesus said, I'm the Lamb of God, he was talking about that bloody mess. So that's the kind of thing that the New Testament is all loaded with that stuff. Mike? It supports a form of slavery. How would that be? What evidence would you use to make that different than the... 
Well, the point is, it's understanding what sla- the word slave did, was in the Old Testament. The word slave was indentured. You know, the irony is that most of us are slaves by Old Testament definition. You know why? Because we all owe money. Uh, I mean, we have mortgages. We're slave to the bank. Anybody who has a mortgage is a slave to the bank under Mosaic law. So, I mean, come on. Uh, so, but the slavery that existed in our country led to a demeaning of the people that were enslaved. That was the difference. Uh, we had people in the South, and maybe in the North, but at least in the South, that were from the pulpit arguing that the black man had no soul. Now, excuse me, but that is not scriptural. And this country is paying a price for this and will go on for centuries paying a price for that. And that was a tragic, stupid, short-sighted, unbiblical maneuver on the part of the church. And so when people fuss, you know, I'll get in conversations now about, well, why are you evangelicals making such an issue out of abortion? And you know what my answer to that is? I said, hey, it's not the only issue out there. But you know what the church is trying to do? We're trying to redeem ourselves from the screwed up mess in the 19th century. The church in Germany didn't speak out in the 1930s. There's just a very few. I went to school with a German boy whose daddy was a pastor in Nazi Germany. And he gave me the whole school beat, how his dad had to take him and his mother out of the place. Because there were many evangelicals in Germany that said, hey, wait a minute. The Führer may be great for the economy of Germany, but we've got some problems here. He's not the Messiah. He's not. You're, you're, you're not patriotic German. So, so the church, has try, when we try to speak out, we get chewed out with a radical right. And when we don't speak out, then, we're, then Christianity's uh, impotent. So either way, you get, you get criticized. It's just that I think the church is doing a good thing. Francis Schaeffer, in the 1970s, argued that if we didn't wake up to what abortion was really about, we were going to encounter the next move, which would be euthanasia and infanticide. And what is happening now? What's the guy in Princeton saying right now? That a child, what is it? Somebody read this guy in Princeton. What's his name? He's teaching ethics right here in Princeton. Yes, from Australia. He's been written up in national magazines. He teaches right here in the school that Jonathan Edwards was president of in the, in the colonial America. And here he is teaching in Princeton University the fact that a child who's deformed isn't fully human. And you, therefore you can kill him. Put him out in the garbage. What did Francis Sheba tell us? It's a slippery slope, and once you lose control of the basic definitions of life before God, everything else follows, because we are creatures of convenience. More and more of our American population are going to be older. It's going to be a medical burden. And you watch, there will be all kinds of economic reasons to get rid of the old people that are weighting down the economy. Holland already does it. The Netherlands, that had a Christian man for prime minister of Holland who wrote the textbook in in theology on the Holy Spirit, Abraham Kuyper. And today, 90 years later, Holland blesses euthanasia. 
So that's how rapidly the situation can change. And it can change just like that in this country. This country is walking right into it. If we as Christians don't stand on the Word of God, it doesn't mean you have to be out yelling in a soapbox. It just means that in your soul, you are convinced that this is right. And when the conversation opens with people, you say your opinion. And you're able to give reasons for it. And able to warn people why we're going down a primrose path, folks. This boy that I went with, he said his dad, to the dying day, regretted that the German evangelicals who in 1932 and 1933 saw what was happening in Germany and they were just afraid to say anything. And by 1936 and 1937, the Nazis in the brown shirts had ganged up in the streets. They'd club you to death. They'd beat you if you dared to say anything. It was too late to talk then. And then he said, it happened so fast. It was only five years that this happened. We lost control. So, those are things that where we, it's going to be an interesting lifetime. We certainly don't live in a, in a ho-hum generation. This, this is going to be exciting times. And we as Christians are going to be called upon to, to exercise. And I'm, I'm thankful that the young people are so aggressive. I think we've seen wonderful witnesses on the part of some of those young people at Columbine High School and some of the other disasters, this air crash that happened in Alabama, I don't know whether you remember, the people, you know who rescued the people out of the fuselage, burning fuselage? It was a choir group. And one boy lost his life because he went in again and again to pull passengers out of that burning airplane. So, neat, neat time. So the young people, there's hope. I mean, the Holy Spirit's working. Father, we thank you for our time tonight, and we pray that you would encourage us from the Scriptures that while we do walk in a world that has fallen, we have a hope that is God-given that you will one day right the wrong and separate it and settle the kingdom of God for eternity based on the rule and the personal reign of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.